This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. And the other announcement wasn't so much an announcement, was just, uh, um, I think most of you probably know that I uh, was away for a couple of months, and I went to Massachusetts, where I taught with Venerable Inalio and Akichino, which was quite a, an interesting uh, practice on the Satipatthana. We had over 100 people in that retreat. And then I went to teach for a month in Israel. I taught a sequence of four courses, two in the city in Tel Aviv and two out in the countryside um, at a kibbutz um, in the Galilee. And they were also very well received and um, big courses because it was over the Passover holiday. So they had, again, around 100 people in those courses in the retreats. The city courses were a little smaller, but the, they were all very, they were, they were hungry for the Dhamma there, really, really hungry for the Dhamma. And then I went to Holland and had a week-long, a little less than a week-long retreat with one day to see the beautiful tulips. <laughs> Has anybody ever been to Holland and seen their beautiful tulips? Fabulous, just fabulous. Fields filled with color. Ah. And we also meditated. So I'm back, and I'm happy to be back. So thank you for still being here. So I have somebody to come back to. <laughs> so, so the theme, as Sharon said, is an equanimity, equipoise. And I've titled this talk, Equanimity, Our Greatest Friend. And I want to begin with a verse from the Teragata, which are the verses of the Enlightenment songs, the Enlightenment verses. If your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes, in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend, and suffering will not come your way. I like this equation of the firmness of equanimity and balance as being our friend, making our mind our friend, something we can trust. The stability of mind is called equanimity. In Pali, the word is upeka. And this involves an openness to experience so that the mind is open and not lost in the tensions of love and hate, of desire and aversion, that pushing and pulling that keeps us separated from existence. Equanimity is a powerful quality in its own right, and it has the potential to strengthen other wholesome qualities. Equanimity is known in particular in conjunction with the other Brahma Viharas, which are called the divine abodes, where there are four of them, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And equanimity functions to fortify the others. Equanimity really strengthens the radiant, caring heart of loving kindness, of metta. It strengthens it with the capacity to be patient, to stay caring, even when 
we can't make somebody happy. To stay caring even when somebody we care about, somebody we wish for their well-being, for their freedom from suffering, for their ease and happiness, anyway does the very things that will cause them great suffering. Without equanimity, we might demand that happiness manifest in exactly the way we think it should. But that's not really metta. That's not really loving kindness. Loving kindness is an openness that is imbued with the equanimity to meet the situation as it is and still care. Equanimity also endows compassion, karuna, with courage, the courage to stay steady and present in the face of pain. Because when we deeply care, and even when we try and help, we can't always stop pain or solve the problems. We can't always even help. Sometimes we can, and sometimes there's nothing that we can do. There's a story where one of the Buddha's great benefactors, Anattapindika, who was a, a layman, a wealthy layman, he had been approached quite a few times by a cousin, a distant cousin, who was a bit of a drunken, spendthrift gambler, but nevertheless, he always had a new idea to start a business. And so he would come and ask for capital or ask for assistance or ask for this or ask for that. And many, many times Anattapindika would give him the capital to start the business or give him generous gifts of various kinds. But each time he would lose it, fritter it away, and, and then come back asking for more. And at some point he said, no more. He said, sorry, this is... <laughs> no more. And sometime after that, the cousin really couldn't get it together, and he died a pauper. And it was really quite sad for Anattapindika, and he approached the Buddha and asked him, was there something more he could have done? Was there something more he should have done? And the Buddha basically said that there really wasn't anything more that he could have done. And there are times when we need equanimity because we've done what we can do, but the situation is not within our control. We can't control the results of our actions, and sometimes there just isn't even anything that we can do. So equanimity is needed so that we can still stay aware of the situation, responsive if there's a way to be to respond, to do what we can do if there's something to do, but also to be okay when there's nothing to do. Now, the, the third of the Brahma Viharas is that of appreciative joy or sympathetic joy. And equanimity is said to provide a balance, to sort of give um, some roots and some grounding and some balance to this state that can be quite uplifting. Joy can sometimes be excessively exuberant. And appreciative joy is particularly about rejoicing in the good fortunes and successes of others so that we can be happy when somebody succeeds and our minds remain free from comparison, free from conceit, free from envy. And equanimity helps us to be 
stable in an experience of joy and undisturbed also when what was successful might at a later time not be so successful. There are times when things are going great and sometimes doing the same thing doesn't work out the same way (laughs) at another time in another condition. So equanimity is a state of balance. It's almost like a state of radiant calm where the mind is spacious and still. It is not indifference. It is not withdrawal. It is not coldness. It is not hesitation. Those are all subtle forms of aversion. Equanimity instead accepts the ups and downs of life. It accepts the world as it is and connects with it anyway. It accepts that in life there is suffering. It recognizes the injustice, the ignorance, the cruelty in the world. And it doesn't withdraw from that and stay in a protected shell of isolation where we can remain balanced. But it engages anyway with a sense of balance. It accepts the inevitable dualities of gain and loss, of praise and blame, and is willing to remain equally close to all things. Early in my practice, one of my teachers encouraged me to cultivate equanimity around two areas. The first was the area of pleasure and pain, that continuum of feeling tone. And the second was to have equanimity with the future results of action. Both of these things are things we cannot control. There's pleasure and there's pain. And we do things and we don't know exactly how they're going to turn out. In the middle-length discourses, on the greater discourse on the destruction of craving, it says, on seeing a form with the eye, he does not lust after it if it is pleasing. He does not dislike it if it is unpleasing. He abides with mindfulness of the body established, with an immeasurable mind, and he understands as it actually is, the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom, whereby those evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. Having abandoned, favoring, and opposing, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he does not delight in that feeling, welcome it, or remain holding to it. As he does not do so, delight in feeling ceases in him. With the cessation of his delight comes the cessation of clinging. With the cessation of clinging, cessation of being. With the cessation of being, cessation of birth. With the cessation of birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. Our entire practice, from the dualities of pleasure and pain, and the habitual reactions of desire and aversion can unfold into a balanced response and a wise engagement that leads to the liberation of mind from suffering. And this occurs in a moment of seeing, or in a moment of hearing, or in a moment of smelling, or tasting, or touching. As we engage with experience, That's where the practice happens.
we start to see all the various changes that happen in even one day, in even one hour. Sometimes something is pleasant, and five minutes later we're experiencing something painful. There can be a movement back and forth between these feelings, and sometimes we're experiencing something and we don't even know if it's pleasant or if it's painful. And it's all life. And for the most part, life and feeling, it's beyond what we can predict, beyond what we can control. What we do know is that there is pleasure and there is pain. And most days we get both pleasure and pain. Wanting pleasure and wanting no pain is not going to change the fact that just about every day of our lives there's pleasure and there's pain. So are we going to stay steady and aware and equanimous in these shifts of pleasure and pain? Or are we going to be tossed around, reactive, angry when there's pain and lustful when there's pleasure? Equanimity is the quality of mind that stays present and balanced, that's willing to be connected with pleasure, with pain, and with neutral feeling, free with a mind that's free from desire, free from aversion, and free from that indifference that disconnects. You probably, if you've been hanging around meditation for a while, you've probably heard the story of the the darts, the, the two darts, where somebody who experiences physical pain is like being struck by a dart. But then if there's aversion to that physical pain, then now you have a mental pain on top of the physical pain. So you've got like, it's like being struck by a second dart. And in the simile of the darts, the parable of the darts, it says, when he harbors aversion towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency towards aversion towards painful feeling lies behind this. Okay, that's clear enough. And then it says what somebody who's not practicing, what they tend to do is when there's aversion towards pain, they seek pleasure to overcome the pain. So now there's lust. Okay, so now you've got your third dart. So first you get the regular pain, then you get the aversion to the pain. Then you get the lust to get rid of the aversion. And then not seeing the dynamics of lust and aversion, you get another dart of ignorance. <laughs> it starts to hurt a lot. I want to mention a few ways that we can work with the cultivation of equanimity. Most of the time we want to not have obstacles in our practice. Fair enough. But actually, obstacles are the best places to work with equanimity because that's when we refine our poise, our equipoise, is when we're facing something difficult, whether it's in our practice, in our meditation, or in our life. Do you consider problems to be a sign of failure? Please don't consider problems to be a sign of failure. They really are practice opportunities and they give us a great possibility to cultivate equanimity. Mindfulness is also a practice that naturally develops equanimity because when we are mindful, we are equanimous. 
And when we're seeing something as it is, whether it's an experience of a breath or a tingly sensation or a moment of contact or we're mindful of emotion or we're mindful of a thought, whatever it is, when we are really present with what's happening in the present moment, we're not involved in favoring and opposing. We're just mindful of what is. And that moment-to-moment acceptance of whatever is arising, whether it's pleasant, painful, or neutral, develops strong equanimity. Concentration practice also develops equanimity because it creates a non-reactive, tranquil, stable state of mind that is balanced due to the strength of the concentration. When we're willing to return to our primary object, for many of us it's the breath or the sitting posture. Every time the mind gets lost, we need equanimity to do that. We need diligence, yes, but we need equanimity so that we just keep practicing and don't get involved in the desire and the aversion that wants something else to be happening. When we do that again and again, when we come back, from our dream world, our lost in our stories, and we come back to being here, sitting, breathing, then very naturally the mind is going to be less reactive, less sticky, and it will be more steady and more equanimous as the concentration deepens. The contemplation also of causes and effects is a specific reflection that supports the growth of equanimity. When we bring wisdom to meet our experience, then we'll be able to see how ignorance and how suffering form. And we'll notice if, as we're meeting our experience, if we're meeting experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, of doing, of deciding, of thinking of this and that, Are we meeting that experience affected by ignorance? Where we're deluded and confused and don't know what's happening? Or do we meet that experience with wisdom that understands the causes and the conditions that give rise to the experience? When we see the patterns of causes and effects, it isn't that we start to figure out how it works so that we can predict what will happen next. We see the dynamics. We see the patterns. We'll see general trends of wholesome and unwholesome. But what we'll also see is that things arise due to causes and conditions, not my wishes. We'll be seeing that, in a way, it's beyond our control. Yes, we can do a lot to cultivate certain conditions because they will be causes that tend to lead towards wholesome states. But nevertheless, it's not within our control. So we need equanimity to meet life, to meet life fully, day to day. To meet life with equanimity, with interest, with clarity, with wisdom. Ram Dass often said, life is your curriculum. Do we learn from the full variety of life's lessons? Or do we try to avoid some? Every day, every single day of our lives, we have opportunities 
to practice and to cultivate equanimity. They can be around very ordinary things. Maybe you had made plans to do some uh, work in your yard and it turns out that it rains that day. Are you bummed out by it? Are you frustrated? Are you angry? Eh, probably not. You, maybe you have enough equanimity to ride that one. Maybe you have a lot of work to do, but you happen to get sick that day. Do you judge yourself for it? Are you angry at the body? Are you worried about what's going to happen? Or can you just have equanimity? Maybe you're working on a project and your computer crashes. That really is a good test of whether or not you have equanimity. Or you're about to go on a trip and just when you're in your packing process, the plumbing goes. There's a plumbing problem. (laughs) How does the mind react? I mean, it's something you have to deal with, but how do you deal with it? Do you deal with it with a lot of reaction Or do you deal with it with equanimity? These days, sometimes you'll need help and you won't be able to get it quickly. Maybe your tooth cracks and you call the dentist and they say, oh, next appointment is in three weeks. But your tooth is cracked. You need to see them like right away. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we can get you in in 12 days. (laughs) And then you're on, you know, like slurping through smoothies through a straw for 12 days or something. Maybe you have an injury where you like have to be on crutches or something and you have to hobble around and, and you can't do things the way that you normally do. Or you know that you need a surgery, but the medical system just sort of puts you on a list and you just are on that list. <laughs> Not necessarily getting the slot at the time when you want it or you need it, but when the time kind of just comes around. Sometimes our cars break down, and then we have to figure out how we're going to do the things we want to do or figure out how to use a bus system. Do we do that with equanimity? And sometimes days just don't work out the way we planned them in the morning. Maybe you woke up in the morning, wrote a nice to-do list, and were busy the whole day and realized not a single thing got crossed off. Is there equanimity? Equanimity is not going to prevent catastrophes from occurring, and it's not going to fix your computer when it crashes. It's not going to prevent a flat tire and it's not going to fix your plumbing problems. But it can provide a foundation for a stable presence of heart right in the midst of the changing nature of life. Equanimity enables us to make the wise choices with a balanced mind so that we'll be able to remain equally close to all things, the pleasant things and the unpleasant things. There are a few things that we might consider doing to strengthen equanimity. The first is to not, in, in our, within our meditation practice, the first is to not always sit for the exact same amount of time. Sometimes we you know, have a timer set and it's always set for 40 minutes. Well, try 47 one time. 
I taught for a couple of years in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And when I went there, the meditation group always sat for exactly a certain number of minutes. I forgot how many, but they met in a zendo. And everything about the zendo felt about exactness. And so uh, one day I just thought, well, another seven minutes won't kill him. So I didn't ring the bell. I kept sitting. And it, it was really, it was only... I. It, I don't even know if it was seven minutes, but it could not have been more than that. It was just a few extra minutes. And they were wrestling. They were <coughs> clearing their throats. They were coughing. They were like looking at me like something weird had happened. That may have been, I, I think those few minutes after their time was probably the more fruitful meditation period than the time when they were sitting all perfect like that. Sometimes we have to venture outside our comfortable little spiritual habits. Sit even when we're tired. Sit even when we're uncomfortable. Sit even when we're sick. Or maybe I should say meditate, because maybe we need to meditate reclining. Maybe we need to do it walking. If we're tired, maybe walking's better. If we're sick, maybe reclining is better. But find ways of continuing our practice within the within the range of changing experiences. I was also teaching in Israel, and on one retreat that had a, over a hundred people on it, about half of them were on their very first retreat. So there was a, what we call beginner energy, <laughs> which is really joyful but very restless. <laughs> they were squirming. They were fidgeting. I don't. I mean, they were like. I mean, they were just, I mean, it was almost like, I looked out and I thought, am I at a dance? <laughs> this way and then this way. And one guy was doing this. And, this and, and I'm sitting here really like extra serious. <laughs> so I think one of the things we can do is to make a, a vow and a commitment to not move to not squirm, to not fidget, to take care with our posture when we sit down so that we have a posture that we know we can safely sit in. And then, I'm not saying do this for an hour. I'm thinking five minutes, ten minutes. And then, if there's an itch that happens in those ten minutes, you don't scratch it. You really watch it. If there's a little wish to squirm, a little wish to shift the weight, you don't. You just, just sit there. That kind of a practice can be really worth doing once in a while to create a kind of resolve for the strength of the posture. In daily life, we have opportunities to wait for people. <laughs> There's a lot of waiting that happens. Maybe you, there's a long line at the checkout clerk in the grocery store and then the person in front of you screws up with the credit card and then has to redo it and then or forgets something and says oh just wait a minute I'm going to go get another tomato and runs off to go get a tomato when the line is just standing there you know can you stand there with equanimity not irritation but equanimity Maybe somebody's late or you have an appointment at the doctor and the doctor is running late. Do you get irritated? Or can you be there just with equanimity? 
I think we need a lot of equanimity around electronic communications because sometimes we do them a little bit too fast. And we can practice reflecting before we click send so that we are thoughtful in the sending. But nevertheless, we might slip. But what we really need equanimity with is when we receive a message or an email or something, when we read it, to be very conscious that we should, we have to be conscious that we may not be able to read in to those quick communications, the emotional tone. Very often, a little brief message might be interpreted as being cold when actually it was just quick. So we need equanimity when we receive those messages. Otherwise, we might judge or get irritated or get angry without even knowing the conditions that the other person was in when they were communicating and writing to us. Obviously, accidents, illness, aging, loss are all opportunities for equanimity practice, opportunities to keep the mind balanced, along with times when we just are inconvenienced and can't have things our own way. Often when we're traveling, we can't have everything our way. Rather than blame someone, blame an institution, blame the world, blame a person, we can just ask ourselves, can I rest in this experience of inconvenience with a balanced mind? Equanimity shouldn't only be developed in relationship to painful experiences. We also need to have equanimity around pleasant experiences. We don't want to just have equanimity in relationship to failure. We also need equanimity in relationship to success. We don't need equanimity only when we're blamed. We also need it when we're praised. When we're praised, when we're flattered, when we're successful, when we're lucky, we really need to have equanimity then. Because if we don't have equanimity when things are going our way, then we'll be vulnerable. We'll be vulnerable to the manipulations of salesmen, of politicians, of advertisers, of con artists. And if we don't have equanimity when we're successful, we could become arrogant and acquire rather unrealistic expectations of the continuous and perpetual gain that we'll be experiencing. When something starts to go well, we imagine now everything's turned and it's going to always be up, you know, going, going, going. But what has ever been that way? Nothing, nothing. The state of deep equanimity itself is a state of profound ease. It's classified as happiness, a deep and profound and supreme happiness. Far more, I want to say pleasant, uh, satisfying, satisfying than pleasure, than sensual pleasure or thrills or excitement. Equanimity is cultivated in this practice in conjunction with concentration, in conjunction with mindfulness, and also as one of the Brahma-vihara practices. When we practice it as one of the Brahma-viharas, we practice loving kindness, compassion, joy, and then equanimity. 
And the equanimity phrases, in metta practice we would use phrases perhaps like, may you be happy and well. In compassion practices, may you be free from suffering. But the equanimity phrases are interesting because we can use almost any phrase that brings the mind to balance. One teacher suggested things are as they are because it just brings us in touch with things. But the traditional reflection is all beings are the heirs to their kama. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon what I may wish for them. That's the traditional reflection, which is a strong one. And alternative phrases I've heard include, may I accept things as they are, may I be open and balanced, may my mind be peaceful, balanced, and equanimous. Whichever phrase or approach you choose, equanimity will mature as we practice it. And ultimately, we're not practicing it by repeating phrases. We're practicing it when we meet pain and when we meet pleasure without being thrown off balanced by them. We can watch for little ultimatums that might arise. It's got to be this way. I have to have it this way. This is the way it has to be. A sense of compelling, kind of a compelling need to control something. That's a sign that that there's an absence of equanimity. If we catch ourselves reacting for and against, then again, that's a sign that there's an absence of equanimity. And so what do we do? We become mindful. And with the mindfulness, there's already now a little bit of balance. And then we can incline the mind towards balance. Slowing down helps a lot because it helps us become more mindful. Being clear where we're sitting, where we're standing, our posture, physically feeling the feet on the ground can help a lot. Tuning in not only to the physical posture, but our emotional posture can help a lot. We can start to see desire and aversion and that push and pull, that tug of war that sometimes moves between the desire and aversion. All those reactions keep us out of balance. The third Zen patriarch, a quote from the third Zen patriarch, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely far apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no no avail. Equanimity is a very beautiful state of mind. It's a very smooth and lovely way of relating to experience. So smooth and lovely, in fact, that it can be confused with freedom. One time I was doing a long retreat and I was doing a period of it where I was focusing entirely upon or specifically upon the cultivation of equanimity. 
And there was a long stretch of time where neither desire or aversion arose in my mind, in not even the slightest, not even the slightest a trace of it. And so during one of my meetings with the teachers, one of the practice discussion interviews, I spoke about this very cool, this very calm, this very clear way of engaging with everything with a mind that was free from desire and aversion. And my teacher very matter-of-factly reminded me that equanimity is a conditioned state. Now, I didn't exactly say that I thought that I was liberated from them forever, but eh, I may have kind of implied it. And this was a good reminder because that quality of equanimity is profound and it's vital to be able to meet life with wisdom. But it's still a relative quality of mind. It's not the goal or the aim of the path. Why? Because I, me, and mine can still be operating. They can still be operating even within deep states of equanimity as the subtle position of the meditator. The very sense of being the one who is free from desire and aversion reveals the limitations of that state. Even the extraordinary ease and peace of equanimity has to be seen with insight. It is impermanent. It is conditioned. So we shouldn't underestimate the strength and the importance of stability. I think we need to cultivate it, but know it as a conditioned state. And the very fact that it can be cultivated is a sign that it is a conditioned state. When equanimity is strong and the mind is not so coarse, when there's pain, we won't tend to react with aversion. And when there's pleasure, we won't tend to react with grasping. The mind will be balanced and aware of experience as it unfolds. It's a perfect opportunity to look to see, is there the view the perspective, the position of an I, of a self, of an experiencer that we're clinging to. If so, we may not be caught by desire and aversion, but we're caught by the delusion of that view. As one friend is fond of saying, as long as there is an I, there is still work to be done. 